Amen. Tonight must be homecoming. We have Dante and Melanie Rudstrom back there. See them. Chase and Stephanie Wilson. And then at the last minute, I see Jameer Davis walk in. This is awesome. This is, uh, this is a family night here. Welcome. We're in the book of Numbers. And you will, uh, it will serve you well to have the Bible open in front of you or have the app open, whichever way you roll. <clears throat> numbers. We're going to cover numbers 1 through 10 tonight in our walk through the Word. And uh, hopefully we can come away with some deeper revelation of what God wants us to learn from this book uh, and the, the, you know, the, all of the, the first five books that we're walking through. The Pentateuch, the books of Moses. The title, Numbers, uh, doesn't do the book much justice, in, in my opinion. Um, I like the Hebrew title better. Uh, the, the title Numbers came over when they translated it into Greek, and it, it became Numbers. Um, the Hebrew title is actually In the Wilderness, which is a little more uh, enlightening. Uh, it gives us a, a better grasp of, of what the book is actually about. There are a lot of numbers in the book of Numbers, no doubt. Um, but In the Wilderness is really the theme of the book of Numbers. Um, after the Israelites came out of Egypt, the story of that, this book uh, covers by far the most time and distance of the Israelites after they come out of Egypt. Um, you know, if, if you skip past Genesis and all those thousands of years that are covered in like 12 chapters, um, this book has the most history from a time standpoint uh, packed into it. Um, so... I want to start with the big picture story because we've come out of a lot of detailed laws in Leviticus, right? Um, so I want to zoom back out for a little bit and just orient us a little bit so we can dive in to the first ten chapters here. Uh, God's promise to Abraham was what? Back in Genesis 12. What was God's promise to Abraham? Yeah, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. I'll make your, to you, I will make you into a great blessing to the earth. I will make you the father of many nations. Through you will all the families of the earth be blessed. What was the other part of the blessing? The promise. I will bless you, I will make your name great. What else? Land. I'm going to bring, I'm going to give you this land. Right? So that's the, that's, the, that's the program God's been working all this time since Genesis 12. It's been the same program, okay? It's good to keep that in mind. Exodus dealt with the deliverance from bondage and the establishment of the covenant and the relationship between God and his people. Leviticus fills out the details of that relationship, the lifestyle that God wants to uh, establish among his people. And all of this, from the deliverance from Egypt, to the giving of the law, to the setting up of the tabernacle, all of it is in preparation to go into the land. Okay, That's what we're dealing with here. 
The, the story of Numbers is the, the first generation of Israelites. It's their failure to enter the Promised Land. Okay, the, we start out, that's the goal of the book. By the end of the book, we've taken a detour. And a, the bulk of Numbers covers the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, and it's, it's from the book of Numbers that we get most of the warnings from 1 Corinthians 10, which has sort of been our theme verse as we walk through here. Um, these stories here in Numbers were written for our instruction and for our admonition. Okay, So it's in here that we find a lot of this truth. However, who read the first ten chapters of Numbers? Did you find it difficult to put it into context? Did you feel just about the way, same way you felt when you were reading Leviticus? Yeah? Katie's shaking her head. She's, she, she, oh, it's worse. <laughs> okay. okay. I was going to say, she, she found the truth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I'd rather discuss, you know, how to cleanse a household from leprosy than just the numbers of each tribe. I guess, I guess that's right. Yeah. Um, but I'm go- we're going to dive into those ten chapters, believe it or not, tonight. And that's I, I want I want to put those in context, and I think that you'll see a lot uh, more deeply into those as we go. All right, I want to read some key portions of scripture that we need to have in our minds as we work through this. I'm basically going to walk through the first ten chapters and just say some things, stop in a few places and point out some things, and that's the plan for tonight. But here's the, here's the background scriptures that I want us to, I want us to, to read. Uh, Genesis 15, given that reference, what, is, what do you think that is? Genesis 15. This is a conversation between God and Abraham. This is the, uh, really the official covenant ceremony that happens with Abraham when God actually promises him the land. So I want to read that. Uh, Genesis 15, starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That was the declaration, the promise of God to Abraham that he was going to bring the descendants of Abraham into this land. He had to bring them out. He had to do some work among the nations that were already there. He says the iniquity was not yet complete. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to send them out. But i got to wait a little while. You guys are going away. I'm going to deal with you in your own way. Okay? Then you're coming back to this place. All right. Now, Exodus 23. That was God's promise to Abraham. And here's God's restatement of that very same plan to the people of Israel. Right after they've come out. Uh, and... Uh, sort of set up camp around Sinai. This is where God is establishing his covenant, right? He's revealing his laws. He's revealing the pattern of his tabernacle to his people through Moses. 
Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, because I guess now their iniquity is complete, uh, and, and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. Um, and he says down in verse 30, Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So was it God's plan to bring the Israelites, or to, to give the land to Abraham's descendants? Was it his plan in Genesis 15? Everybody say yes. <laughs> Was it his plan 400 years later, after he had brought them out of Egypt, to take them to that very same land that he had promised Abraham? Yes. So when we come to the beginning of Numbers, what is the plan? <laughs> to go into the land that God has promised to his people. Okay, so I want to read through I'm not going to read it verbatim all the way through. But I want to walk through Numbers 1 through 10. And read it in the context of God preparing his people to journey into the promised land. It makes much more sense if you read it like that. Okay, And it doesn't make a lot of sense if you read it as the boring epilogue to the boring book that came before it. Okay. We have to keep in mind, the amount of ink in these books is not indicative of the passage of time. Okay. So, let's, let's, uh, let, me, let, me, let me tell you something about that. Uh, go to verse 1 in chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. And this is, these are valuable time markers, time stamps here in the book of Numbers. On the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Okay? So the first verse of Numbers says, all right, <laughs> let me, let, let's get your bearings. Okay? Where are we? We're in Sinai. What happened at Sinai? God gave the law. They set up the tabernacle for the first time. When is this? It's the first day of the second month in the second year. Not much time has passed, right? Uh, and so it's important to think in these chunks of time and not necessarily in the, the volume <laughs> of the words that you're reading. So if you go all the way through Leviticus, you kind of forget where you are. 
this orients us right back to the story. So what do we open with? Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel. Oh, man. Census. That sounds, uh, sounds exciting. By clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. From 20 years old and upwards, all who in Israel who are able to go to war. Oh. We're on a journey. Where are we going? To the promised land. What are we going to do when we get there? We're going to drive out the inhabitants of the land. So why take a census? Because we need to know how many men of war we have in the camp. Does census make more sense? Sis? The time has come to make preparations to enter the promised land. So he says, number the men of war. Number the men of war because we're going. We're getting ready to strike camp. And we're heading out. Okay, so that's the first thing. The census tells us that this is God gathering and preparing for what really amounts to a military campaign. Okay? So we're not just kind of curious so we can jot down some numbers. We're not gratuitous accountants around here. We're just, we are numbering the men of war. Now, it doesn't stop there. Okay, so we've got all the numbers. All those listed, 20 years or older, 603,550. So 600,000 men, 20 years older. That, you know, a lot of people say there's a, that must have mean that there's around 2 million people here in, in, in the camp at this point. All right, now listen to this, verse 47. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them from among the people. But he had a special purpose for the Levites. Appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony. Number your men of war, but let me tell you about the Levites. Here's what I need them to do. So, you need to notice that the Levites are exempted from the census, because, why? They are to guard and to care for the tabernacle and the furnishings. Um, there's a lot of significance here, but let me just t- break it down in simple terms. Have you ever seen The Raiders of the Lost Ark? Have you seen that movie? You know what happens when they mess with the Ark of the Covenant? Right? It's like face-melting lasers come out. Um, what I see here in this, this next portion. So we have the census in chapter 1, and then it goes in and it talks about the arrangement of the camp and the duties of the Levites. It spends a lot more time talking about the duties of the Levites and the arrangement of the camp than it does talking about the actual numbers of, of men of war. Right? What this tells me, if this is God's preparations for a military campaign, yeah, we got... We need to take stock of how many men of war we have, but, but what's even more important? What's our real military advantage? It's the temple of the Lord. It's the presence of God. Okay, so you have this next section of Scripture. It's awesome. It is so symbolic. Appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, all its furnishings. And we talked about the tabernacle, how the tabernacle is a reflection. It's a blueprint 
of the heavenly dwelling place of God. Right? Um, it is his presence here on earth. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Again, that makes a lot more sense when you think in terms of we're marching into enemy territory. We're about to make some people angry by exalting Yahweh as the one true God, by breaking down all the other pillars of the, of the peoples around us. So if you see someone heading into command central, take them out. <laughs> That's what it means. So it, it doesn't mean like, yeah, visitors, you don't, don't invite visitors into church, right? Church shoppers, take them out, right? Put them to death. That's not what we're talking about here. We're marching into hostile territory. And he says he's appointing Levites all around the tabernacle to guard it, every, every part of it. And if you see any foreign people heading into the tabernacle, you take them out. We guard this place. Okay? So it walks through um, the arrangement of the camp. And this is awesome. What's the reference point of the whole structure? All the city planning. What's the, what's the reference point? The tabernacle. The presence of God. Okay? So how do you find your place in the city of God? You know where you are in reference to the presence of God. And he says, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, you're on the east side. On the south side, Reuben, Simeon, Gad. And also when you march, you guys are second. On the west side, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin. And you guys set out third on the march. On the north side, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. And you guys set out last. Now listen to this, uh, chapter 1, verse 53, but the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony. Chapter 2, verse 17, then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so shall they set out. The Levites were, all, were, were sprinkled all around the tabernacle. Okay, So dispersed through all the people were the Levites whose sole duty it was to keep watch on the tabernacle. Okay? So, two things in the, the arrangement of the people. You know where you are because you know where the tabernacle is. And also, you know where you are because you know who camps with you. Okay? You know who you are. You know where you camp because you know, I'm with these two other tribes. And we are west of the tabernacle. Isn't that awesome? Everything... Where you live has to do with where the presence of God is. And it's all, it's all circled around there. All right. Then it goes on in chapter 3. Uh, more about the duties of the Levites. Um, that goes on into chapter 4. Okay, And this is because the primary point here is that the presence of God is the only thing you have going for you. Okay, Yeah, we took, we took a census of the men of war, but really, what I'm concerned about is that you maintain all of the laws and all the sacrifice, sacrificial system and all of the operations of the tabernacle. So that why? I mean, what was all that pointing to? So that God could dwell with his people and so that God's presence could be among his people. Okay? 
These things are important. We're heading into a place that is going to try and you know, tear you down. We're heading into hostile territory, and it is vital that the, ta- the tabernacle of God is preserved and guarded. Um, also, this, this points out to me, uh, and what I see in this, is that even in the Old Testament, it's not like the Old Testament, the battles were of flesh and blood. Like you killed actual people in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, you just slay people in the Spirit or whatever. Um, that's, not how it, that's not how it goes. In the Old Testament, it's just as much a spiritual battle. right? The weapons of their warfare are these Levites making sure that the forks and the tongs all get carried correctly and that we maintain righteousness in the midst of the camp. That is the weapon of their warfare. You see that? This is spiritual warfare. All this arrangement, all of these systems, all of these patterns of holiness and, and all this stuff, this is spiritual armor that God is equipping them with. Does that make sense? What's the spiritual armor in Ephesians 6? The helmet of salvation. Did God give the, old, the Israelites the helmet of salvation? Yes. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right? Stick with me, and I will go before you and drive out your enemies. Did he give them the breastplate of righteousness? Absolutely. I mean, the whole book of of Leviticus is equipping them with the breastplate of righteousness. Maintain righteousness, right standing with God. Here's how you do it, right? If you do this, righteousness will be maintained, and I will be with you, okay? The breastplate of righteousness. The shield of faith, which if you've read through Numbers, you know that they did not take up when they went to spy out the land. Right? It was the opposite of the shield of faith. Uh, they, they just left that at home. They said, oh, they're big. We can't do it. And then they just ran home and said, all right, they're big. We can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb are going, what? We have the Lord. I mean, they look big, yeah, to you all. But we have the Lord of hosts, right? We have the shield of faith. And you've, you've forgotten that piece of armor. The belt of truth and the readiness of the gospel of peace, your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Okay, Peace was not just a peaceful, easy feeling. Peace is where everyone loved their neighbor as their self. That's peace. That's Old Testament peace, where there's an absence of strife, relational strife, an absence of enemies. Right? That's peace. And that's what all of Leviticus is centered around. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of those laws point to peace. Peace in the biblical sense of relational unity. Right? Justice. Um, Then in chapter 5. So do you see how that, in the Old Testament, it's, it's spiritual warfare. That's what all this tabernacle business has to do with. It's a spiritual battle, okay? And the presence of God is the only thing we have going for us in that battle. Chapter 5, we have a few other laws that are aimed at peace, okay? Um, We have this test of adultery, which always sort of baffled me. Um, I don't know what to say about that other than at the end of Numbers, 
Well, here, let's, let's just read. Here in this test of adultery, what is it? Is if, if, if the husband gets suspicious that the wife has been unfaithful. Okay? And in verse 14 of chapter 5, it says, If the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife. Okay? Um, I think it's God understanding and being sympathetic of a husband's jealousy over his wife. In the end of the book of Numbers, he commends Phineas for his jealousy. He says, because he was jealous of the people of God just like I am. And what did Phineas do? He went and threw a spear through a couple who were committing adultery. So I see in this law, I don't know, you know, the test is kind of weird and drinking the water and the, and the, the belly swelling and the thigh falling away. I don't know what that means. But I do see here God saying, there's something to a husband's jealousy for his wife. Okay, and we should see in here the Lord, our groom's jealousy for his people. As they are going into a land full of adultery, right? It's interesting that here is this law. When he says, don't go and give yourself to those gods. Don't be an adulterous people. Be faithful to me. I'm faithful to you. I've committed myself to you. Don't commit adultery with all these other gods. Here we have the Lord kind of pointing them toward an earthly example of this jealousy. Does that make sense? Chapter 6, the Nazarite vow. Okay? Um, Mason Collins recently broke his Nazarite vow, so we should all uh, congratulate him. <laughs> is he here tonight? Oh, there he is. Yeah. Didn't even recognize him. Uh, no, a Nazarite vow involved, you know, not cutting your hair for a long period of time, not even eating grapes, you know, much less wine or, or any sort of alcohol. Um, but basically, the Nazarite vow is a voluntary period of increased consecration to the Lord for a period of time. Um, go to uh, Amos 2. This kind of fills it out for us. Why, why we get this here in Numbers. Why the Nazarite vow here in the beginning of... Why is it important at this point in Israel's story? Uh, i got to find Amos. It's easy to skip past those minor prophets. Okay. Amos, page 926. Uh, Chapter 2. I'll start in verse 9. God sort of, this is later, much later in Israel's history, and he's prophesying against, Amos is prophesying against Israel. Start in verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. There's the Amorites again. So we're talking about the promised land, one of the people groups that God is driving out by sending the Israelites in. Whose height was like the height of cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men, some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? So what's he saying there? 
He's saying, I went before you, I destroyed the Amorite, I gave you prophets, and I raised up young men as Nazarites. Okay, so these Nazarites were, were apparently, according to, to Amos, a gift to the people of God for the mission. You could consider them sort of a special ops uh, part of the military, right? Not everyone is, is, should do it, right? But there are some among the people of Israel that God raised up as, as Nazarites. Um, who are some famous Nazarites that you can think of from Scripture? Samson, yeah. Samson was a Nazarite. Um, I think John the Baptist, apparently. was. I don't know if it says it explicitly, but he was under some sort of radical devotion. Um, and then I think Paul, for a period, had taken a vow. In Acts, it mentions he cut, his, he cut his hair because he had been under a vow. Was that Paul? i got to double-check that. Go and, go and fact-check that uh, when you get home. But the point is that in the mission to possess the land, um, God also gifted the people. He gave them all their roles. They all knew their place. But there were some that he commissioned and that he put it in their heart to, to rise up and to, and to become specially consecrated and given to the people of God in that way. Uh, and Amos, he, it's, it's like they, are, they become an asset to the people, a special asset to the people in, in their mission. Um, and it reminds me of when we used to, I don't, we may start this back up at some point, but it reminds me of when we used to kind of offer, you know, for people coming out of college to give one or two years to the church. You know, it's that kind of thing. It would be kind of like a, a, I saw some Mormons on the way in. You know, they're on mission. That's kind of, that's very similar to what a Nazarite vow would be. They're walking around, they got their short sleeve button down shirts, and, and they got their bikes and their backpacks, and they're, I don't know why they name all their kids Elder, but they do. Um, uh, but it's, it's like that. It's a period of dedication. Thank you, Phil. Someone needed to bail me out there. Um, it's a period of dedication. Uh, CTS would be another good example of ways that we kind of reflect this, this sort of thinking. Um, so it's getting out of ordinary life and being given in a, in a particular way for a period of time to the work of the kingdom. Um, so I wanted to point that out. I think the, the significance in, in, to us in, in numbers is that we, we have all hands on deck and we need even some people to go above and beyond because the thing that we're doing requires it. Does that make sense? So, Nazarite vow. Okay, we're going to continue to head in to the promised land. Chapter 7. This throws us back to when the, when the tabernacle was set up. And it says, it just talks about all the offerings that each tribe brought at the dedication of the tabernacle. Uh, so again, every, the, the tabernacle is the center. It's the heartbeat of the people of Israel, right? The presence of God. And when it went up, it was a big deal. Um, at the end of chapter 7, we get a neat glimpse into just what went on in the tabernacle. And it says, When Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Um, okay, then in chapter 8, more about the Levites. This is an important task, okay? 
Chapter 9, oh, I will say at the end of chapter 8, the emphasis is on purity, consecration, highlighting the importance of the duties of the Levites. Um, and at the end it says uh, that they have to retire at age 50, which may be another indication that this was going to be uh, a physical task. You know, this isn't just a bunch of old ministers sitting around talking about the good old days. When you're 50, you're out of there because this is a taxing job. This requires your life. This is physical. You're carrying stuff around. It's a physical duty. Um, it's, it's military in some ways, it, the guarding the, the tabernacle, right, against enemies. So we keep guys in there, and they need to be fresh and totally able to do the task. Um, Okay, chapter 9, we really get back into the story, okay? So we've had eight chapters of God preparing the people, preparations. Chapter 9, we get back into the story. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Here's another time stamp. These are really important. You should always underline these to orient yourself. In the first month of the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, so this is the second Passover. They celebrate it, and he gives this little provision. He says, I want everyone to celebrate it. If someone's unclean, they can file an extension, celebrate it next month. Because <laughs> he says, it's important for all my people to remember that I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Okay? Um, the last half of chapter, eight, of chapter 9 sorry, talks about how uh, the cloud covered the tabernacle, and it just gives it, it just gives the recap of the way when the tabernacle would move. This is how it would go. Okay. Verse twenty-two says, "Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out." Okay, so that's all sort of summary, filling in some backstory. Then we have these trumpets in chapter 10. We talked about the Feast of Trumpets last week. Um, a trumpet was a signal. It was an alarm. And it, uh, it really was... Let me read it. You shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. You shall blow a long blast. Okay? And when you go to war in your land against the adversary, you shall sound an alarm. Okay, so the, the sound of these trumpets meant forward march, charge, right? We're going. So that's kind of the final preparation. Now in verse 11, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, where did we start the book of Numbers? Second year, second month, first day of the month. Here we are, second month, 20th day of the month. So this is 20 days after the beginning of Numbers. Um, go to uh, Exodus 40. Verse 16. This Moses did 
according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Okay, second year, first month, first day of the month. Flip back over to Numbers 10, verse 11. Second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted. So how much time passed in between the tabernacle first going up and the people leaving Sinai? Yes. That's it. A month and 20 days. That's all the time that has passed between the end of Exodus and Numbers 10. So keep that in your head. All right, we're still... We had the little thing with the the golden calf. God cleared that up. And now we're headed into the promised land. Okay? Brought you out, gave you the tabernacle, gave you the laws, and I'm sending you in. We're going. The cloud lifted... The people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. They set out for the first time in the command of the Lord by Moses. So they get in their order, right? Everything's going great. This is the climax of the book of Numbers. Verse 35, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. That's, a, that's the life we live. When we wake up in the morning, our heart cry should be, Arise, O Lord! I'm your man. I'm your woman. I'm giving myself to the purpose. I am taking possession of the land that you're sending me into. Go before us. Drive out our adversaries. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when your head hits the pillow at night, he says, Return, O Lord to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Restore us. Replenish us. Feed us. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. Okay? This, is the, this is to be the rhythm of the people of God on the journey. Okay? Oh, I wanted to... Let's see. They, it said that they set out in verse... Lost my place. 33. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord, that's Sinai, for three days' journey. Go quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verse 2. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, that's also called Sinai, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, which is basically on the, on the front porch of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea. 11 days journey total. That was all the marching they had to do. They set out for their three-day leg, and just like in the book of Exodus, after three days, what happens? Numbers 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. All the preparation. All the organization. All of the equipping. All of the instruction comes to a screeching halt because their feet got tired after a three-day hike. Uh, I actually measured on Google Maps the distance between uh, Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. I, I plugged it in and 
had it give me walking directions. <laughs> and it's like 87 hours. Sounds like about 11 days journey, right? You go about eight hours a day. Eight hours of hiking, right? 11 days journey. You just got to walk 87 hours. And here, we're going to take a three-day three day leg. That's all it was going to take to get to the promised land. You see what I'm saying? How long did it end up taking them? 40 years. 40 years, because they got a third of the way there and decided that God didn't know what he was doing. You string together a couple bad days, and you throw your hands up, and you ask where God is. Has anyone else done this? <laughs> Sound familiar? These things were written for our instruction, for our admonition. We go from the silver trumpets of Israel setting out on the march, and it ends in the price is right losing horns. <laughs> right? And Billy's going to pick back up there and, and, and dive into that process by which the people turn from God and cling to just what they can see, feel, hear, and start to live to their senses rather than living for the revelation of God. And here's the point. It always happens on the journey, okay? It doesn't happen at the worship service. It doesn't happen when everyone's singing and prophesying and we see the heavenly Jerusalem, the promised land. We see this city on its knees before God and we're going there together. Right? It doesn't happen then. It happens after we finish the first week and a half of outreach and we're done with it. No fruit. I don't see any fruit from my life. Right? Where's God? It's too hard. And this is what we have to, this is what we have to learn from this. You don't understand that for 400 years... Longer than that, since the beginning, but especially from, for 400 years, God has been looking forward to going with you into possessing the land that He's prepared for you. He's ready. And you have no idea the power that is at your disposal. Live in the way that He's taught us to live. And it is better than 50 nuclear weapons. You understand? Forget the nuclear codes. We have the law of God. And we have the presence of God. And we are marching into battle. And if we can peel ourselves away from the, the immediate reaction to hardship, to becoming weary, to all the stuff that befalls us, and we all are familiar with it, if we can peel ourselves away from that and once again come back and at the end of a hard day say, Return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. Tomorrow I'm going to wake up and say the same thing. We're going. Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. He's never, he's never going to turn his back on that. He never has. He's never going to stop taking his people into possess the land. Okay? 
So this comes at a good time for us. Right? We're about to hit campus. And for a long time, we've known that God has given us a land there, that God has given us an inheritance for his son at UK. And we can see it, we can acknowledge it, but, but the journey is coming, right? We're going to set out. We're going to march three days. And when you get to the lowest point, come back to this and remind yourself, I know where I camp. I know where, the, I know where the house of God is, and I know where my brothers are. And we're here in the camp, and God's in our midst, and we got the Levites equipping us, guarding the tabernacle, and we're still on the, we're still on the road. It's not that far ahead. <laughs> right? It's an 11-day's journey. Your life is, is fleeting. Okay? You have 70 years, 80 years, and you're out of here. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap, if you faint not. Amen? So can we hear that from the Lord tonight? He's, he's, he's numbering us. He's arranging us. Everything, All the preparations are made. Okay? Jesus is our captain. We're following him. Um, so let's come up and, and respond in worship. I don't really have an altar call. I just I, I want us to just spend some time reflecting on the things that God has shown us about where he's taken us as a people. Recall the, the times in your life when the purpose of God was crystal clear. Where a prophetic word really touched your heart and called you to be something that God was, was calling you to be. Call those things to your, to your mind right now as we worship. And let remind yourself that God hasn't gone anywhere, that the plan hasn't changed a bit, and that the purpose is moving forward. Doesn't matter how you feel. Okay? God declared it. God's going to do it. It wasn't like it was up to you anyway. So are you going to get on board or not as we go? Okay? And leave all that baggage behind. All of the, all the, the fleshly response to hardship and adversity. Okay? Can we do that? Can we embrace that truth as a people of God? We're a victorious people. And let's stand and sing to God uh, because He has made us victorious. Amen?